All right, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus 31 this morning, so as you're turning there, just want to remind you, or if you're a guest this morning, that we are in the middle of a sermon series called Blessed to be a Blessing. Well, we could have called it Gifted to Give, um, because this is truly what God has done. Is he has given us blessings, he has given us gifts, and he invites us uh, to use our gifts uh, to bless others. And so what we've been doing is going through this book, um, really discovering uh, these different ideas of how God has blessed us. Now, those of you who are part of a life group, and I know many of you are, probably have figured out we have shifted or pivoted from this book now to this book, and this is the workbook, right? So now you're all in school uh, going through the workbook together. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in the workbook. So this is kind of high-level stuff, higher-level stuff. Um, and then hopefully you all took the assessment, everygift.org. It's free. It takes 15, 20 minutes-ish, uh, I suppose, depending on how much time. And then what it's going to really do is it's going to invite you to kind of uh, drill down a little bit or get a little bit more specific uh, in terms of... Uh, understanding your gifts and how uh, you can be using your gifts. And so we're going to dial in um, as we look at these different gifts. And so I just want to put the, the gift wheel up there uh, so you can kind of see these different gifts. I took this right out of the book. And today we are going to focus on technical gifts, technical gifts. And according to uh, the authors of this book, uh, Pastor Don, this is how he describes technical gifts. Technical gifts include baking, photography, sewing, cooking, problem identification, planning events, exegeting scripture. That's what I do every week. If you don't know, exegete uh, just means studying scripture, uh, tearing it apart and, and kind of really analyzing it. Um, as Jeff did in our opening this morning, kind of sharing the Greek, and that's what it means to exegete. Um, computer knowledge, fixing, language acquisition, healthcare, real estate, electronic and optical materials, teaching math, Computer repair, gardening, uh, painting, general house repair, music, media production. Jeff, you made the list uh, in the book. Organizing, scheduling, and more. And I think as we look at um, this kind of technical gifts, we're like, all of us can probably go, oh yeah, I've, I made the list somewhere on here. And so um, this is what uh, they say is, uh, they all have this in common. Technical gifts help you perform specific tasks that require a special and refined set of skills, to which I would just translate stuff, right? That's what's going on here is we've got, we all got stuff uh, that uh, God has really given us, these technical gifts. Now, while we all have, probably have, you know, some of these different technical gifts, um, what they really kind of identify in this book is you've got a primary gift and a secondary gift. And only 8% of the population has a technical gift as their primary gift, and 8% has technical gifts as your secondary gift. So if you kind of rose to the top, you are special and unique. You are only among 8% of the population. So did I give you enough time to get to the book of Exodus? Awesome. Great. Well, let us pray. God, thank you as we worship you this morning. God, as we prepare to open your word, as we read a story um, uh, that reminds us, God, that you are good and faithful, that, God, you continue to pursue your people and you want to be in relationship with us. 
So, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I just want to kind of set the stage a little bit for you. The book of Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament. Exodus comes from the kind of the, the root word exit, to go out, to leave, to depart. And the book of Exodus, of all 40 chapters of the book, it's really about a journey, a journey of exiting, a journey of leaving. And the primary character in the book of Exodus is, of course, Moses. And so uh, the book starts out um, uh, in, in this journey through the desert. So there's, I, I kind of chunked out and kind of want to lay this out for you. I kind of see that there are three different movements or sections to the book of Exodus. There's lots of different ways of looking at it, but I think the way we're going to look at it this morning, because we're going to be right in the middle, Exodus 31, um, I just kind of want to set the stage for you and kind of help you to understand how I'm thinking about uh, uh, this book. So the book of Exodus uh, begins about 1300 BC. 1300 BC. So a long time before Jesus uh, walked on the earth. And it's, it's that part where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And they've been slaves for a long, long time. And the story, in Exodus 2, we, we start to learn about Moses and the birth of Moses. And you probably remember from vacation Bible school or Sunday school when Moses was born and he was placed in a basket on the Nile River and all that good stuff. Then he grows up. He, uh, uh, as, a, as an adult, uh, he kills someone, so he flees off to a land called Midian. And for a long, long time, he kind of lives in exile away from the land of Egypt and away from his people. And then one day, in the first part, these first uh, uh, part of uh, 1 through 18 of Exodus, one day God comes and meets Moses in a burning bush. You guys know this story. So this is just a little bit of a refresher. And he comes over and he starts having this conversation with God in the burning bush. And God says to Moses, hey Moses, I've got something I need you to do. I want you to go and free the people uh, in Egypt, my people, the Israelites. And I want you to go to the most powerful man uh, in, in, in ancient times, the Pharaoh. And Moses is like, yeah, I can't do that. I stutter. I don't talk well. And he puts up all these barriers and all these reasons why he can't go. And so as the story goes on, you guys know this story. He brings along his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, and they go to Pharaoh and they have this conversation. Ten plagues later, God is uh, allowing uh, the, the Israelites, God's people, uh, to leave, to depart, to exit out of Egypt, uh, out into the wilderness. And so as they're having this conversation, and Moses is trying to process all that is going on, God says, I'm going to take you on a journey. And I'm going to go with you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And Moses is a little bit confused because Moses understands, as the ancients understood, is that people live on earth and God lives in the heavens. How in the world could God who lives in heaven and people on earth journey out? How could they exodus? 
Moses knows the story back in Genesis 1 and 2. When God created the world, he created all of creation and, and God to be in relationship with one another. And remember, we've read this story in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything was good and there was relationship and harmony and this wonderful partnership. And, and they would walk together in the garden and they would have this wonderful conversation, Adam and Eve and God. But then, of course, sin came into the world and it ripped this relationship apart. And then all of a sudden, no longer, because God is holy, God is perfect, and now humanity is broken. There's this separation between what is holy and what is not holy. And this is what we read about through the rest of the Bible, is this, this relationship of, of God in heaven and people on earth, and how do they be, how are they in relationship with one another? So when God says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to lead you and guide you, Moses is like, how does that even happen? Because we're not connected together. So after these 10 plagues, they journey from Egypt out into the wilderness. Somewhere between 600,000 and 2.5 million Israelites, they depart, they exit out into the wilderness. We don't know exactly how many people were there. There's all sorts of theories. Uh, you can read all about it. And the interesting thing in the book of Exodus is that after God liberates them, after God frees them, the first part of the story is about freedom and rescue and God coming to the people and bringing them out into freedom, the Israelites come to Moses and say, okay, now what? Now what do we do? How do we live our lives? God, you promised that we were going to be in relationship, that you were going to lead us and guide us through uh, for, for our journey together. How is this going to happen? And so that, that's kind of section one, uh, chapters one through 18. Chapters 19 through 34 are, is God having a conversation with Moses, uh, primarily up on Mount Sinai. And it's really interesting if you read these chapters uh, of the book of Exodus, it's much of it is God speaking directly to Moses. And when you think about it, that's kind of interesting that we actually have the very words of God speaking to Moses. So it's this conversation back and forth between God and Moses. And, and Moses, sometimes when we think about Moses going up Mount Sinai to have a conversation with God, we think that it was just a, a one time they went up, or Moses once went up. Actually, Moses went up Mount Sinai, came back down, up Mount Sinai, came back down to be with the people about eight-ish times, about eight times. On the fourth time up, Moses is up there listening to God, and, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. That's in the book of Exodus. It's in these chapters of, of, of Moses up there, and they're having these conversations. In uh, uh, the sixth time up, that's where we're going to get at today. So we're actually going to read a conversation between God and Moses. And I thought it was important for you all to understand the context in terms of what's going on. We just all of a sudden dove into the middle of Exodus 31, 1 through 11. And so in this part, God is going to reiterate the Ten Commandments. So it's in Exodus yet again, this time uh, inscribed on stone tablets. And this is going to happen over and over. Moses up, back, up, back, golden calf, up, back. You know, you guys know this story. So this, it's just this up and back, and Moses is having these conversations. And finally, when Moses comes down the last time, 
He's like got really bad sunburned. It's like he went to Florida and put on no sunscreen. He comes down and everybody's like, what is going on with you? You are like crispy. He's like, I experienced the very presence of God. And so that's kind of how the the last uh, verse 34. uh, And then verse chapters 35 through 40. God has given Moses all these instructions for now what? How are they going to go on this journey together? And they start to prepare for this journey and put all these pieces into place. And the primary thing that we need to know about 35 through uh, 40 is they're building the tabernacle. God explains to Moses uh, up until this point in time that there's going to be a meeting place where the heavens come to earth. God says, this is how I'm going to lead you and guide you. I'm going to come dwell among you and you're going to build this tabernacle. Tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. It means a meeting place. It's where heaven and earth come together. It's, it's where God and people gather together. The French might say something like, let's rendezvous. God would say, let's rendezvous at the tabernacle. And so this is the setup uh, that I want you to hear now as we read uh, Exodus 31, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, God speaking, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, which is the largest tribe of Israel. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and with understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for the work in gold, silver, bronze, and to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Ahoyliab, uh, son of Ahimasak, uh, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Now, Dan was the smallest tribe, biggest tribe and smallest tribe. I also, I have given the ability uh, to all skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, which is another way of saying the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant law with the atonement cover on it and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. And for the anoint and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense of the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. And if you've ever read uh, the Old Testament or what's going on here in the book of Exodus, there's lots and lots of details which I think ought to uh, invite us to, and just consider that God really pays attention to all these details because he is the one who is uh, uh, inviting the people to live into these details. I don't know about you, but sometimes I hear people talk about, well, always lead to God. You know, just kind of whatever you want to believe, kind of whatever you want to do, whatever religion you want. And clearly God cares about very specific ways 
where heaven meets earth and they come together in relationship. Now, when we think about the tabernacle, I kind of want to just lay this out for you. Uh, the tabernacle is really two tents, two tents. Um, uh, if you've ever gone camping, uh, you know what it's like to bring a tent. And, and the, the, the Israelites were going to go on a journey uh, together, um, uh, all these folks. And, and so they needed these tents. And God says, I want you to have two tents. And the first tent is going to be the, the court tent. And it's going to kind of surround uh, the, the, the inner tent. And this court tent is 150 uh, feet long by 75 by 75. Now, when you think about this for just a second, this building here, I've actually measured it out. We are 100 feet by 50. And so the tent that is going around is 150 by 75. So this is about, I mean, it's obviously bigger than this space, but this kind of just gives you a, a, a visual for how big it was. Then there was the, the other tent uh, inside uh, with the roof over it, of course. And this is called uh, the holy space or the, the holy sanctuary. And it is 30 by 15 by 15. Those are the measurements that God gives uh, to Moses uh, to do this. And inside that tent, you kind of put, you split it in half, is what's known as the Holy of Holies. And that is 15 by 15 by 15. Okay, so it's, it's kind of cut in half. Now, as we think about the tabernacle and what the tabernacle, what it was all about, what its purpose was, I think it's really helpful for us as New Testament people, as Jesus followers, to really consider the ways in which the tabernacle foreshadowed the person of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus. So when, when, you, come to, um, when you come into the tabernacle, next slide, Stacy. There we go. Okay, at the very bottom, you're going to see the, the entrance. Uh, that's the first tent. Remember the courtyard. There is one entrance when you come into the tabernacle area. And I think this really reminds us um, of Jesus when he talked about there is one way to approach God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what exactly what that, taber that, that entrance into the tabernacle, into the courtyard is declaring is that there is only one way to experience an approach God, to God. And then I think about the other time in, in John 10, 9, where Jesus says, I am the gate or I am the gatekeeper. It's this reminder that there is one way. And so as we journey through the tabernacle, I want to unpack each of these. The first thing you're going to see when you come in there is the copper altar. And this is a place when you walk right in the tent to this very first place, you see a copper altar where you uh, can bring a sacrifice. It's your way of saying, okay, I'm in. I've stepped into the presence of God like we stepped into the presence of this worship space this morning. And the very first thing we need to do before we go any further, is to confess our sin. And this is why we begin every single one of our worship times together in confession, just saying, okay, God, before we worship you, before we do anything else, most certainly before we receive the sacrament or, or uh, read your word, we're just going to confess and acknowledge the ways in which we are sinful and broken before you. And in 1 John 1.9, he writes, 
when we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, to hear our confession and forgive us all of our sins. And that's what that copper altar is all about when you walk right into the tabernacle. And then right after you go past that, you will see a copper lever or a copper uh, wash basin. And that, of course, is for cleansing, for washing. When we think about that, we, we consider and think about our own baptism, the ways in which as we approach God, we consider the ways in which he has washed us clean. I think about Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper. As they're getting ready to share in this meal, Jesus all of a sudden starts washing their feet. And Peter's like, hey, don't wash my feet, Jesus. And, he's, and Jesus is like, I have to wash you. And he says, okay, wash everything. Wash my entire body, right? This is what Jesus does when we come into his presence, is he washes us clean. So we go by the, the, the copper uh, altar. We go by the copper basin. And the next thing uh, we experience is the entrance to the holy place. Remember, that's the bigger tent. The entrance to the holy place. And in front of the entrance of the holy place, there is a curtain. It's a reminder that there are many people out in the world think there are many ways to enter in. But Jesus says, oh no, there's only one way to come in to the very presence of God into the holy place. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, he says to those who are gathered on that day, enter by the narrow gate, because wide is the gate that leads to death and destruction. And so to come into the holy place, which by the way, only priests were allowed to go into the holy place. Most of us couldn't go in there. It was only the special people, the priests, Aaron, his sons, and those who had been determined as priests. And so you, you go inside to that holy place, and the first thing you're going to see is the table of showbread. We think about what Jesus said about himself, what he said about himself. Remember he, one day he was preaching a sermon, talking to his friends, and he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never be hungry. It's this, right, this idea that Jesus nourishes us and sustains us. This is why we come to Holy Communion on Sunday morning, to be, to be fed spiritually, to open God's word, and to just for him to feed us in those places in our lives where we are so hungry. And then after we go by the table of showbread, there's the lampstand, or it's a menorah, it's a candelabra. And remember what Jesus said about light? I am the light of the world. Do you see how the, 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 the tabernacle is just kind of, all this was spoken hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. And now Jesus is reaching back into the Old Testament, into the book of Exodus, just declaring himself to be the pieces of furniture, even the tent, the door, and the gate. And then number, uh, the seventh thing as we, as we move through the holy place is the altar of incense. And this is the sacrifice that the priests would make before going through that next curtain, that next door, the holy of holies. What's separating the priests from going into the holy of holies is that sacrifice. And so that altar, the first one was made of bronze. This one is now made of gold. And there were special offerings that were made on this. 
And this allowed people to enter into the Holy of Holies. It actually only allowed one person, one time a year, the Most High Priest. But that's how significant this altar was. It was, it was the, the last stop before stepping through the curtain and coming into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. And this really represents Jesus on the cross. The last thing that separates us from God is our sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to die on the cross for you so that you can enter into the very presence of God. And so that's the imagery that's going on with the altar incense. Number eight, one more curtain. Remember I told you uh, about this a little while ago. This enters into the Holy of Holies. And you know the story when Jesus died on the cross. He gave up his spirit. In Matthew 27, 51, it says the curtain was torn, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Think about it. Not from the bottom up where the people are, but from top to bottom. It's as if in that moment that Jesus died on the cross, God ripped away any, the final and last barrier between humanity, between you and me, and between God. And God says, okay, now not just the holy priest, everyone's welcome in the holy of holies. And Jesus was that person uh, on the cross when, the, cro uh, when the, the veil was torn in two. And then in the, in the, the last part, um, uh, once a year, the high priest would be able to go into uh, the Holy of Holies uh, and to experience what we know, of course, as the Ark of the Covenant. And, and I just kind of want to unpack that for you a little bit. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the first thing uh, about the Ark of the Covenant, it is known as the very presence of God. That's why you maybe remember Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when everybody like put, put their eyes on, on the Ark of the Covenant. They would just like burn up and all that. They burned up because God tells us in Scripture that nobody can come face to face with God and live, that we will burn up. And so that was, so Hollywood did a pretty good job there letting us know what that's all about. That's from the Bible, folks. But what's inside the Ark of the Covenant in that wooden box are the stone tablets, the very word of God, the law, if you will, the Torah. So that's one of the things uh, that is inside there. And then on top of the box, it's what's known as the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is that place where God sits in judgment. Because God judges the whole world. He says, that's what I do, is I sit on the mercy seat and I judge the world. That's, that's why we think God is so awesome. Because he's just. We don't worship an unjust God, we worship a just God. And then decorating the Ark of the Covenant are these two cherubim. Cherubim, of course, are angels. And if you go back to Genesis, uh, when, when Adam and Eve had to leave uh, the garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, God placed some angels to protect the garden so that they couldn't go back. Because remember, the garden was perfect. And so God, God put these cherubim in front. And so there are these cherubim who are protecting the Ark of the Covenant and... The secondary role of cherubim, these angels, is to worship. And so there they are. There's God sitting on the mercy seat. And there's cherubim 
worshiping and praising God, holy, holy, holy. And then the last thing I want to lift up to you uh, as it relates to the Ark of the Covenant is the Shekinah light, the Shekinah glory. And we, you know, there's this idea that, that God is light. He's this unbelievable bright light. And whenever we try and hide from the light, uh, God says, I'm going to find you. And he comes after us, and he comes after all those dark places in the world, and he shines the light of himself into the world. And so I want to spend some time going over the tabernacle for you this morning, because I don't think we oftentimes understand what is this place, what the, these te this, this tent of meaning, what's all this about? And what God is telling Moses, and he's telling the Israelites, and he's telling us, this is the very place where we're going to gather together. This is the very place where heaven and earth come together. And whenever you travel, and they did travel for the next 40 years, they would pack up their tents, and they would sit down at the next place, and they would unpack and set up the tabernacle. God would meet them in this place. This is how significant this was. And even when they got to the promised land 40 years later, they continued to use the tabernacle as the place of meeting where God and, and people come together to dwell with one another. And everybody's like, oh, this is just like back in uh, the Garden of Eden where God is dwelling and living with his people. And so this is how they could approach one another. Now, um, this, this went on for hundreds of years. And the tabernacle actually became uh, the, 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 the model for what would eventually become the temple. David said, hey, um, we're going to build a temple. We're, we're done with the tenting. It's time to build something permanent. And so God gave David this vision to build a temple in Jerusalem. We know it, of course, as Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple, is, if you look at the pictures, yeah, there you go, looks very similar to the tabernacle that we looked at a, a little while ago. And the, and the temple, uh, it was, uh, after Solomon built it, it, it was functioning for about 400-ish years. And then King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and destroyed it, and there was no temple. Then along came a group of Israelites who said, hey, God is calling us to rebuild the temple again. So you've got the first temple, and then the second temple from about 516 BC. You know the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple. I know many of you do. And then around the time of Jesus, along came King Herod. He's like, man, this temple has gotten kind of shabby. We need to do some renovations. Any of you ever done renovations in your house? That's what King Herod did with the second temple, Solomon's temple, uh, not Solomon's, the, the second temple. Came along and said, man, we got to fix this up. And so we sometimes know as the second temple or even Herod's temple. And then in 70 AD, the Romans said, enough with you Jews. And they squashed the temple. And to this day, the temple has never been rebuilt again. And so we ask ourselves, well, how do people meet with God there's no temple. That, the, the, the tabernacle in the temple, that was the place where people meet with God. And of course, the answer for us as Jesus followers is Jesus. We don't need a temple. We don't need a tabernacle because we've got the person of Jesus who has met us and served in all these roles and all these ways. 
And so just kind of backing up a little bit, the book of Exodus is all about Moses and his wife, Zipporah. It's about his brother, Aaron, his sister, Miriam. It's about his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro came to Moses one day and said, you are working too hard. I need you to appoint 70 elders so that you can share the work together. This is all in the book of Exodus. So we come to the tabernacle. We ask ourselves, who built the tabernacle? Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur. It's Bezalel. He's actually the guy that was in charge of building the temple. Now, when you came in this morning, if I had pulled some of even you biblical scholars and said, hey, who built the tabernacle? You'd probably say, Moses. And you'd kind of be right, right? He was, he was in charge, and he was the guy that God communicated with. But who actually was in charge of the work, the technical work? Bezalel. Because Bezalel clearly had Technical skills, gold, silver, bronze, stones, woodwork. So I want to close our time this morning just by kind of looking at some of these skills that God used through Bezalel and how God might be using you as well. Uh, So I'm going to just give you four quick things. The first thing uh, as I was reading the text uh, this past week is that God called Bezalel. He called him to use his gifts. He says, I have chosen. This is what it means when God chooses people. And I love that we've got these details, that he was the son of Uri and the grandson of Hur. Her. Why, why in the world would the authors put the, the, uh, Bezalel's father and his grandfather in Scripture? I think it's what, because what God is trying to communicate to us that God had called Bezalel long before Bezalel walked on the earth. Long before God even thought, before people even thought about the tabernacle, God was already planning to use Bezalel to use him to do what God wanted him to do. And I think when we think about a calling, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I just want to reiterate, a calling is simply an invitation from God. It's where God comes to you and to me and says, I have work for you to do. I have something I need you to do. And then we gather together in community. A calling never happens outside of community. You got to know that, folks. Nobody can just stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, I feel called to do this or I feel called to that. If the, The congregation always has veto power. And we know plenty of people who have kind of put this, this mantle on their shoulders and said, I am a prophet and I have been called to do this, right? Drink the Kool-Aid or whatever it might be. And this is why the church, you are so important because you affirm or deny a call. A pastor is only called in the life of a congregation because you have said so. I serve here at your discretion. I serve here because you said so. And this is how it works in any call. And so when you're thinking about your call, you can feel like, you can think, you can wonder if if God is inviting you to do something, but you need to check it out with other people. And so Bezalel was called 
just like you are called. And I want to remind you, just like Bezalel, before the foundations of the world, God knew you were going to be here this morning. Before the foundations of the world, God knew every detail of your life. Before the foundations of the world, God was calling you to do something and to live and serve in this world. Number two, Bezalel was gifted. God says, I have given ability. Who gave Bezalel the gift? God did. So every single one of the, the gifts that we might receive, they're gifts from God. Any gift that you or I might have, it's a gift from God. Now we might see in the text here, that I'm, and I'm guessing that Bezalel, he had a, a natural ability to work with gold and silver and bronze and woodworking and all that stuff. He was just good at it. He enjoyed it, and he was very good at it. I mean, if you watch baseball at all, you can watch uh, Shohei Otani or, or Mike Trout and go, natural. They're just gifted, right, at, at what they do out on the baseball field. It's like, dang. They've just got this natural gifting. But then, any person who's got a gift, and you know this, there's not just natural ability, but you've got to work at it. You've got to improve it. I guarantee you, Mike Trout didn't just wake up one day playing baseball the way he's playing baseball. He said to work at his craft, and we have to work at our craft as well. That God has given each one of us natural gifts that we live into, we learn, lean into, but then we work and we study and we grow. Third thing, called, gifted, and equipped. I have filled him with the Spirit of God. So there's the natural gifting, but then God also says to Moses, I've even make, given him supernatural abilities, something beyond anything that can point to himself. He can't just show everybody the tabernacle and go, wow, that's really neato. You are so gifted. You are so talented, right? Remember, the Israelites were slaves. Where did he learn these things? Where did he get this gift of being able to do these artistic things, these technical things? He was a slave. And God says, I have given him the Spirit of God. We would probably say um, the Holy, God gave him the Holy Spirit supernaturally working in him. What God is t telling us, I think, through this text, he's not just going to call you. He's not just going to invite you. He's not just going to give you talent, but he is going to equip you. He is going to fill you with supernatural ability so that you can do what he is calling you to do. I wonder if um, you, any of you might uh, ever have enlisted in the military. Let's just say some of you have enlisted in the army. How many of you enlisted in the army and Uncle Sam said, hey, thanks for signing up. This week we've got on sale uh, 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 machine guns, bullets, and tanks. Which one would you like to buy? I mean, that's not how it works. When you sign up to serve in the army, the U.S. government provides you with equipment. They provide you with what you need. Anybody in the Air Force, hey, you want to buy an F-16? You're going to need it. I mean, we would never think of that, right? They provide the F-16 for those of you who are flying, flying fighter jets. And this is what God says. is I'm calling you, I'm inviting you, I'm giving you gifts and skills, and I'm equipping you to do far beyond what you could ever imagine. Far beyond. People could look around and go, I don't know how he does it. That must be God. That must be the Holy Spirit moving through him. And I think for you and for me, this is the hard part. 
to trust that God is actually going to have the Holy Spirit working supernaturally through us, and we have to trust. And the last thing I want to lift up this morning, called, gifted, equipped, and focused. Bezalel was focused on the greater good. Remember, the tabernacle was not about bringing honor and glory to Bezalel. It was meant to bring honor and glory to God. It was meant to be that, that tent of meeting, that place where heaven and earth collide, where they come together. It was never about him. When you came in this morning, most of you didn't even know who he was. But you know about the tabernacle a little bit. Now you know a whole lot more about it. The tabernacle was never meant to be about Bezalel. When we think about the gifts that God has given us, they are never meant to be about us. And so as we think about, can you go to the next slide, Stacy? Just look at all those tents surrounding the tabernacle. That's who the tabernacle is going to serve. The people. All the people in the community so they can come and be in the presence of God. And Bezalel understood that his role was to be on the team that built this tabernacle. When you get on an airplane and fly somewhere, who gets you there to your destination? In about four and a half weeks, my family and I are going to go up to Chicago, and we're going to get on a plane. About eight hours later, we're going to land in Barcelona, Spain. Who's going to get us from Chicago to Barcelona? You might be thinking, the pilot, right? But if you've ever flown before, and I guess most of you have flown before, the pilot will do what the pilot does. But there will also be flight attendants, because I'm going to get hungry on that trip. And they're going to take care of me. They're going to take care of everybody on that airplane. And oh, by the way, there's going to be some baggage folks who schlep bags and throw our bags around on that uh, airplane uh, as well. And then there's going to be some people at the gate, right? Because there's always last-minute shifting at the gate. And they're going to be standing there at the gate. And if I'm in the wrong seat or I got a problem, I need to talk to a gate attendant. And then there's going to be a guy who's standing there as the plane is leaving doing this with the orange lights, right? Who is that guy? How do I get that job? But you know, I've never seen a plane leave the gate without a guy doing this. They are critical to that plane taking off. And I think about the people who built that aircraft. I think about the people who maintain that aircraft. I'm super glad that there's going to be people who fuel that aircraft on that day. And I'm really glad that just before that plane landed that the cleaners got on and cleaned the plane. Anybody else glad about the cleaners on the plane? I mean, we can go on and on. You know how I purchased these air tickets online? There was some software IT dude who was taking care so that I could get on. I didn't buy the tickets from the pilot. I bought them from the software people. You know, just for fun, I wanted, uh, we're flying American Airlines. Just for fun, uh, I found out that there are 134,000 employees that work for American Airlines. And there are 6,700 flights a day. It's a lot, right? Just for fun, I did the math. That means that for uh, every flight, there are 20 people who are serving 
to make sure we get from Chicago to Barcelona. I didn't even include TSA. I didn't even include the parking attendants coming and going. I didn't include any of the security, any of that stuff, or the contractors who made the food. You see where I'm going with this? I mean, we can talk all day long about how Moses built the temple, or even Bezalel built the temple, but it was the people. It was the people who came together to use their gifts so that God and the people could gather together. It's about the team. So on Tuesday this week, uh, I'm going to meet with one of you for coffee. That's what I do. And then in the afternoon, uh, I'm going to start working on a sermon. Tuesday is my writing day. It's when I begin to write the sermon for next weekend. So as I'm having coffee, talking to some of you, working on a sermon, Lori and Marilyn are going to be cooking chicken casserole. Marilyn's famous chicken casserole. And Lori's going to make a salad and brownies, right? And ribs and sandwiches and ice cream. Are you doing all this? God has gifted Lori and Marilyn with technical gifts for cooking and baking. And then next Tuesday evening at about 6 o'clock, the three of us are going to drive over to the Illinois State University campus. We'll show up at the Salt Company. Our team is going to meet their team, and we're going to be one team. That's, that's Marilyn and uh, Lori's food up there. But then we'll meet Daniel, the pastor over there. Probably meet Jonah, the, the director of the Salt Company. And there are going to be lots and lots of folks over there who are all part of the team, doing what they do. Each one of us has a specific role, and all the roles matter. Because here's what's going to happen, because I've done this a couple times. Every time I go over to Salt on Tuesday night, the first thing you're like, oh, you got the food. We're so glad you're here. What's for dinner? We're so hungry. We're so glad you're here. And it's just going to go back and forth, and they're going to be so excited because as they're preparing to do ministry with college students, they're looking forward and anticipating the ways in which we serve and partner alongside them to plant this church over there. What are we doing Tuesday? We're planting a church. And they're going to be using their gifts, their technical gifts, to love and care and to serve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that, God, you invite us to use all sorts of different gifts, gifts that we don't even think about, but gifts, God, that can honor and serve you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do with us what only you can do, just convict and touch our hearts so that we, too, might be used for your honor and glory. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.